today, uh, as we continue into the Bible, uh, of course, we've been on this, this journey through the Bible this year, began way back in January in the Old Testament, and spent a lot of time on the Old Testament, seeing the promises of Jesus, the, the prophecies of Jesus, the, the pictures of Jesus. Now, everything in the Old Testament, every story, every event, everything that happened in the Old Testament was pointing to the promise of the Messiah. When, Jesus had, when God had said way back in Genesis 3 that he would send a redeemer, he would send uh, someone to crush the heel, the head of the snake, even though the snake would bite his heel, how picture after picture, story after story was just pointing to Jesus. Then of course we began looking at the Gospels and we saw how Jesus completely fulfilled those prophecies and those promises, how he came as God in the flesh and lived a perfect, sinless life uh, because we could not. We could have never lived the life that Jesus lived. We could have never completely fulfilled the law as he did. And so he came, lived a perfect, sinless life, completely fulfilled the law. Then he died on the cross, a death that we should have suffered, a death that we were condemned to. He allowed God to pour out his wrath for sin on Jesus. And Jesus suffered and bled and died in our place to pay our sin debt. And then he rose again to redeem us to God the Father. And we, we saw how all of that, how the entire life of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise. Then, of course, Jesus ascended to heaven after he rose from the grave. And he commissioned us, the church, to complete his mission, to complete the work of getting the gospel to the entire world because Jesus doing the work on the cross was what we needed for salvation, but it wasn't enough for him to just do it if no one ever knew about it. Because yes, he, he paid our sin debt, but we have to accept his gift of salvation. And so he commissioned the local church to go out and preach the gospel to every creature and to go to Jer Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, spreading the truth of the gospel. And so we began looking at how the church, how what our role is as a church and what our role is as a believer in this mission of God. And then last week we started looking at the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and we saw a lot of the issues that the first church at Corinth had, and a lot of division, a lot of problems were coming up in this church that Paul had to address. Because Paul, of course, he started this, this church way back in Acts chapter 18, and he started the church at Corinth. He got it going, got all these people saved, and he moved on to start more churches. But he keeps getting word that the church at Corinth is a, is a mess. It's got division. It's got sexual sin. It's got debates over what we're supposed to do with the law and what we can and cannot do as believers. Can we eat meat, worship to idols? Can we, are we supposed to avoid meat, worship to idols? There's, there's confusion in the services. The services were just a chaotic mess and people weren't believing the miracles of God. And so Paul is writing the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth to correct these issues. Now, the church at Corinth does correct these issues, but they... They go to the other far extreme. And so Paul has to write the letter of 2 Corinthians to correct them again. To like, hey, you, you, got, you got some of it right, but now you're, you're way far on the other side. Let's bring it back into the middle. And so he's writing the, the letter of, of 1 Corinthians to correct these issues. Last week, uh, we looked at chapter 1, how Paul addressed the, the uh, topic or the, the problem of division in the church. This morning, 
we're going to look at the fourth problem Paul addresses, which is chaotic church services, specifically the way they were observing the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper, uh, it is not a religious ritual that we observe to kind of prove our worth to God or prove our humbleness before God. And it's really, it's supposed to be a special time where as a church body, the church comes together and we are united under the truth that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he allowed his body to be broken for us, he allowed his blood to be shed for us, he gave his life for us, he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And it's a time where we come together and we remember the sacrifice of God for us. The sacrifice of Jesus so that we could be redeemed to God the Father. We remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's one of the, way, one of the reasons that when we observe the Lord's Supper here at New Grace, we, put the whole, we, we dedicate the whole service to it. Because it's, it's, it's a precious time for us as a church family, for us as believers, to remember and thank God for what he endured for us, for what he did for us. It's not supposed to be a time of division. It's not supposed to be a time of, of showing off or seeing who's better than who or who has more you know, favor with God than anyone else. But that's exactly what they were doing in the church at Corinth. You know, the Lord's Supper is to remind us that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed in our place. But the believers at Corinth, they were using this as a way to show their, their worth to God and to show that they were better than other believers. This is how they were really doing it. The, the wealthy believers at Corinth, when they would come to the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to explain why they did this, but when they came to observe the Lord's Supper, they were bringing these elaborate feasts. They had all kinds of, of wonderful food. They had steak and lobster and all kinds of stuff and, you know, shrimp scampi and, and, and bacon-wrapped scallops. You say, well, how do you know that? Because they could finally, now that they're believers, eat seafood and bacon. So they're like, woohoo, we're doing all this. And, um, man, bacon-wrapped scallops, we need to go to good seafood place today. Anyway, and so they were bringing all this elaborate food and just having these wonderful feasts. They were, they were engorging themselves on food. They were getting drunk before the Lord's Supper service even began. And they were doing this to show their wealth, to show how powerful and how wealthy they were and how lucky the church and how lucky God was to have them. And then you have the poor believers, who barely have enough food to get through the week. They barely have enough food to feed their family, you know, the rest of the week. And they're, they're coming to these Lord's Supper services and they've got, got nothing or very little. And they're, they're hungry and they're feeling left out because the rich are having these wonderful parties, these wonderful feasts, and they're, they're not there. So the wealthy believers, they were puffed up with pride and they, they felt that they were more deserving of God's grace and God's favor than these poor believers who 
couldn't do anything for God anyway. They were too poor to help out anyway. And so it caused a lot of chaos in the services. It also caused a lot of division in the church, to, in the church that they were dealing with in the church bodies. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse number 17. The <clears throat> Bible says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. So again, Paul says, look, I'm not praising, because he, he had been praising about some things they were doing right. He goes, but now we're going to talk about something, and I'm not praising you. I'm not happy with what you're doing. Uh, I praise you not that you come to get together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there is divisions among you, and I, I partly believe it. Paul's like, you know, y'all are coming together and causing all this trouble, and I believe it. I, I, know, I know what you people are like. I know how proud and puffed up you can be, and so I believe you're causing troubles. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before uh, other his own supper, and one is hungry, and the other is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So here's, here's what's going on. Paul is, he begins to correct their practice uh, of the Lord's Supper. He goes, what you're, you think that what you're doing is pleasing to God, but it's not. And here's how they would observe the Lord's Supper. They would have, before they observed the Lord's Supper, they planned a fellowship meal. Now, we all love fellowship meals. You know, we're, we're Baptist. When we meet, we eat. We enjoy it. You know, coming up in October, we're going to have our, our fourth uh, four-year anniversary. And after the anniversary service, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to the gym and we're going to have a fellowship meal together. It's been way too long since we've actually done that. I know we've done some cookouts, but it's been two years since we've been able to sit down and have a fellowship meal where everybody brings a side dish and, and Miss Trudy brings her banana pudding just for me. Just for me, people, all right? Not y'all, mine. And so, you know, we have the people bring, you know, macaroni and cheese and all this wonderful food. And man, we love it because we get to enjoy everyone's cooking and get to enjoy this wonderful food. And that's what they were supposed to be doing. They would come together as a church family, have this great fellowship meal together. Then they would enjoy that they would observe the Lord's Supper. But what was happening was the rich people were coming a little early and they were bringing their elaborate feasts. Again, steak and lobster and just all this incredible food. But they weren't sharing it with everybody. They were enjoying it for themselves. So the wealthy would come together and have these wonderful feasts and they would stuff themselves. And, and, and actually, the Bible, Paul says you'd get drunk on, on wine before you even observe the Lord's Supper. And then the, the poor people would show up expecting to enjoy a fellowship meal, bringing what they could. You know, they're bringing a veggie tray, thinking... This is all I can bring. And all they're stuck with is a veggie tray. You know, that's why we ask you to bring something you can, everyone can share. Because look, not everyone can afford to, to bring a great big, you know, potluck dish or pot. Some people can just bring hot dogs and that's fine. Maybe all you can cook is hot dogs. If all you can cook is hot dogs, cook hot dogs. That's fine. I like a good hot dog. Other people like a good hot dog. And so if that's all you can bring, great. But we're not saying, well, you brought the hot dogs, you have to eat the hot dogs. So I know you brought hot dogs, great. Here, have some of this macaroni and cheese and some fried chicken and any dessert you want, except Miss Trudy's banana pudding. 
Don't have that. That's for the pastor only. And so, you know, we like, hey, bring what you can, but eat everything you want. It's open. That's what they were doing. They were, they were like, hey, you brought the veggie tray. You're eating the veggie tray. You didn't bring anything. You're not eating anything. And so Paul says, don't you have houses to eat in? Why don't you eat before you come to church? Eat your feast. Eat whatever you want. But don't do it at church. You're, you're offending other people. You're disgracing the, the church of God and you're, you're hurting people. And so Paul's like, this is not how you are meant to do the Lord's Supper because y'all are coming together to unite under the fact that Jesus died for us and was buried for us and rose again for us. But you're, you're just bickering and fighting over who has what and who can, who can eat what. Now, this just goes us to show us there are no perfect churches anywhere in the world. If you are looking for a perfect church, you're never going to find it. You know why? Because even if there was a perfect church, the second you walk in the door, it ain't perfect. And hey, I'm not criticizing you. If there was a perfect church, the second I walk in the door, it ain't perfect no more. It's a mess. You know why? Because we're a mess. There's no perfect church because there's no perfect people. So if you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going until I find a perfect church, you're never going to settle somewhere. Just realize no church is perfect. We're all messes. We're all broken. And that's fine because we serve a healing Savior and just settle in and get going. But so there's no perfect church because there's no perfect people. But there is a perfect Savior that we worship. You know, Paul is writing, and this church is divided over how to do the Lord's Supper, over interpretations of the law, over what they could and could not eat, under, over, uh, divided over understanding of race relations and politics, divided over income levels and educational levels. And they were supposed to be coming together with the Lord's Supper as an ultimate show of unity, but instead they were divided. So Paul, he is showing them what the basis for true authentic Christian community is. And it's the basis for community isn't the fact that we all have to be the same or think the same or act the same or have the same income or education. It's not that we're all the same, but the fact our Christian community, our unity is under the fact that we are all part of the body of Christ. We are all of the family of God. We all have the same Savior. We all have received the same Spirit. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. We are all of one Savior, and the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a physical demonstration of that unity. That is bigger than anything that could divide us. It's the people of God declaring that we are all sinners, but we are all equally loved by God. The Lord's Supper declares that we all find grace at the cross. And grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve Jesus' sacrifice. We don't deserve to be adopted into the family of God. We don't deserve salvation, and we never could. 
today as we continue through the Bible and we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we're going to see the grace that the Lord's Supper reminds us that we get from God. So number one, it shows us grace from the past. It shows us grace from the past. Look at verse number 23. <clears throat> For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament of my, in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. See, over 2,000 years ago, grace took on the name of Jesus when he died for our sins. See, grace was given to the entire world when Jesus was hung on the cross. He allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, and he died in our sins. He was giving grace to everyone who would receive it. And so through taking the elements, we are given a reminder of the grace that was displayed on the cross for us. Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering his sacrifice. When, when Jesus was, in it, it was with his apostles the night before his crucifixion, they were observing and they were eating the Passover meal. And other Lord's Supper services, we've spent a lot of time explaining the, the Passover meal and the, the Seder meal and, and everything that was involved there. And the Passover meal was a, a yearly feast that the, the Jewish people would do, would do yearly to remember the Passover uh, of when, when they were delivered from Egypt, how the death angel came into Egypt and passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And they would remember what God had done to deliver them from captivity. And it was a long, elaborate meal. It would last for hours. They had this, this special plate where everyone had, you know, some, uh, a bone with some marrow in it. They had some bitter herbs. They, they had a, a hard-boiled egg. They, you know, it's not like a, a, a real, doesn't sound like a tasty meal. They had some onions there and just all kinds of weird things. And they had the, the Seder bread, the Passover bread that was unleavened because they didn't have time to rise. And they had four glasses of wine they had to drink at certain times. And it was full of, of, of speeches and scripture reading and, and prayers. And it was a very set out thing. When you went to a Passover meal as a Jew, you knew what was going to happen. You knew what was going to be said. You knew what was going to be prayed. You knew when you were going to eat and what you were going to You knew everything. And so Jesus goes to the upper room with his, with his apostles to have the Passover meal. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Instead of going through the Seder meal, he does something totally different. And he, he takes the bread and he breaks it out of order, not when he's supposed to, and says, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. Takes the wine and pours it and says, 
this is my blood that I'm going I'm to shed for you. Every time you do this, remember my sacrifice. Remember what I did for you. Remember me shedding my blood so that you could have eternal life. Remembering me allowing my body to be broken so that you could be restored. Remember me taking your sin for you. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering a historical event. We are participating in spiritual realities. In taking the bread and taking the wine, we are remembering Jesus' death and resurrection and saying, because of what you did, because of your suffering, because of your death, because of your shed blood, because of your resurrection, I am one with my Savior. But why the, the bread and the wine or, or grape juice? In our case, because we're Baptists. But why the, why the bread and the wine? Think about what it takes to make bread. No, no, I'm talking to, how many of y'all have ever made bread from scratch? All right, I'm going to ask that again. How many of y'all have ever made bread from scratch where you grew the wheat yourself, harvested it, grinded it up, made it into flour, and then baked bread? Yeah, nobody. We don't do that anymore. But in these days, to make bread was an elaborate process. You couldn't just, you know, get some bread flour out and some yeast and eat it. You couldn't even go to the store. And buy. You had to go through a lot of effort. And so you had to grow the grain. What's it take to grow the grain? Well, you've got to plow the field. You've got to break the ground. Throw the seed in the ground, cover it up with cold dirt. And then it's got to survive, you know, harsh winters and scorching heat for it to finally grow enough where it's, it's, it's ready to be harvested. And then when, when you harvest it, you know how you harvest it? You chop it down, gather it up, throw it in the barn. Then you thresh it. You know what threshing is? You beat the living stuffings out of the grain until all the chaff and all the stuff that you don't need is gone. You throw it up in the air to get the chaff to blow, and you, you finally gather together all the, this, this, this good grain that you can use, and then you got to grind it up with some stones. Usually you got put it in a pit, and you got a, an animal or a man that walks around and just grinds, slowly grinds this grain up into its fine flour. Then, then you can make bread. And you got to knead it, you got to hit it, and you got to fold it, and then you get to stick it in a hot oven to bake it. And then you got a loaf of bread. And, you know, we, April's made homemade bread. I've made homemade bread before. And, man, just the smell of it. And it, it, I think it's unfair that when you make homemade bread, you have to wait for it to completely cool off before you can eat it or cut it because it is so good when it's steaming hot and you just put butter on there and the butter just you know, melts everywhere. It is so good. And, uh, but you know, you gotta, after you do that, before you can eat it, you again have to break the bread. You gotta cut it up. You know, and if you're having pita bread, you gotta rip it. You have to break this bread. You have to break it in every step of the process just to be able to enjoy the bread, just to get the nourishment for it. Then the thing about wine. When you, when you look at wine or, you know, the, the grapevine is, is planted and as it grows, it, it's pruned. They're constantly cutting off chunks of the grapevine, cutting off pieces of it so they could grow better, so the grapes will grow stronger. And then when the, when the grapes are finally ripe enough, they gather them together. 
They put them in this big vat and then they crush them with their feet or they crush them with the wine press and they just squeeze out every bit of juice from that grape to be able to get something to enjoy. So these are the perfect pictures of the, the blood of Jesus flowing for us. The bread is a beautiful picture of his body being broken for us. It shows us the suffering that he endures. And so he breaks the bread, he pours the wine, and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. Now, the fall, the fall of man, puts every single one of us under a covenant or a contract of works. That's what the whole Old Testament showed us with the law. God said, look, if you want to be restored to a right relationship with me, here's a list of rules, here's a list of laws. Obey every single one of them completely your entire life and you'll be restored. You'll be redeemed. Easy peasy, right? Sounds great. No. The laws were, were very elaborate. You know, we think, oh, well, he said, you know, don't kill, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't lie. We can do that. No, no, no. Those are just the Ten Commandments. Those are like the basis for everything else. And he says, oh, by the way, here's all the, you can't plant two fields together. You can't eat this. You can't wear that. You can't do this. You, you know, you, you, you see a homeless person. You got to do this to help them. And just all these elaborate rules and laws that God put in place. And the point was to show us we could never do that. We had a contract with God. God said, completely obey the law your entire life and I'll redeem you. That's a contract God gave us. We could never live up to it. In Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is giving the Lord's Supper, he tells his apostles, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you because I'm writing a new contract. I'm giving you a new covenant, a new contract where no longer do you have to obey the law of God and have good works to save you because it never could. But here's what I'll do. I will live the life you could never live. I will die the death you were condemned to die. I will allow God the Father to pour his wrath for sin, for your sin out on me, though I am sinless. I will take your sin and give you my righteousness. And all you got to do is put your faith and trust in me. That's a new contract. I will live. I will die. I will rise again for you. And the Lord's Supper shows us that we have been given an incredible display of grace. When Jesus did for us, we could never do. But grace isn't a one-time thing. We don't receive grace at salvation and God gives us a little measure of grace. Okay, here, here's all the grace you're going to get for your whole life. Use it sparingly. You know, if you use up all your grace before you hit 30, rest of your life, you're tough. You're done. He didn't just give us grace at one time. He gives us grace for every day. So first of all, we see the grace that he gives us in the past. Secondly, we see the Lord's Supper shows us he gives us grace for the present. Look at verse 27. <clears throat> Wherefore... Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself 
And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if you, we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should be not that we should not be condemned with the world. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, too many of you are taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. And he says, when you take the Lord's Supper unworthily, you are guilty of the blood and body of Jesus. He's saying, you take it unworthily, then God's wrath for your sin that Jesus paid for, it can come back on to you. So you got to be careful. Now, there's a lot we could go over here, but this is one of the biggest problems of the local church. Of us, not, not just in Corinth, us today. I want you to think, really think about the unworthy manner that we usually take the Lord's Supper. That's why I try to do the whole service for it, because I think just tacking it on the end, that's, that's unworthy. Just doing it all the time, it makes it unworthy. It makes it lose its, its thing. But notice, Paul didn't say that they are taking it because they are worthy of observing the Lord's Supper, because none of us are. None of us are worthy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There, none, you know, there's none that does good. We all fall short of God's glory. The word unworthily that he uses there is the Greek word anoxios. And here's where it's important. It is an adverb, not an adjective. How many of y'all love English? Yeah. Me neither. Hate it. All right. You're weird, Jesmine, though. Uh, now, most of us, you know, I hated diagramming sentences. And here's the worst part of being a parent. Your kids have to learn that stuff that you used to learn and hate and forgot. And then they come to you and say, hey, Dad, how do I diagram a sentence? Oh, you, you go to Google.com. And you say, or they come with you with math problems. And the thing is. They changed math. Math is different now. How do you do that? And so Connor comes to me. He's like, well, here's how they show me to do this division. I'm like, the way they're showing you is stupid. Here's how you do it. I've actually gotten to the point where he's like, how do I figure out this algebraic equation? I was like, here's, my teacher told me when I was in high school, you know, and I'd ask for it, you're not going to have a calculator with you all the time. <laughs> Sucker. So now Connor's like, how do I figure that out? You pull out your calculator because you're always going to have it with you and you figure it out. I don't care. Just do it. And so, but, you know, I hate a diagram in sentences, but the, 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 the adverb and adjective thing, because it's not just an adverb and adjective in English. It's also in the Greek. It's an adverb, not an adjective. Now, an adjective, it qualifies as a noun. It describes someone or something. An adverb describes an action. We are all unworthy, adjective, that's what we are, but we can take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Adverb. Here's what Tim Keller says, and here's how, here's how we take it unworthily. We observe the Lord's Supper unworthily when our lives don't line up with the life of Jesus. When we are not living in a way that Jesus tells us to. When we're living our life for our own desires, 
our own wants. We have unconfessed and unrepentance in our life because I'll do what I want to do and I'll live my life the way I want to. It's my life. God can't do anything about it. That is an unworthy manner. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, obviously, the Lord's Supper is not for perfect people, but for repentant people. But that is just the point. The Lord's Supper forces us to keep our inner experiences linked with our outward behavior. It demands that we ask, am I truly living a life of gratitude and obeying God? As I would be if I really believed that he saved me at the cost of his only son? Am I loving others sacrificially as I would if I really believed I was saved by sacrificial love? And so Paul says, before any of us take the Lord's Supper, we should examine ourselves. And examine ourselves means that we, we ask the question, does what I say I believe actually line up with the life that I'm living? Does what I say I believe about the Word of God line up with how I'm living my life under the Word of God? That's what Paul says in verse 31. He says, if we judge ourselves the way that we judged others then we wouldn't be able to be judged. Here's, here's what he's saying. If you judged yourself truly, you'd figure out you're a hypocritical sinner. And you stop judging other people, and that way you wouldn't be able to be judged by others because you're not judging them thinking, I'm better than them, I'm, I'm more deserving of them. If we truly looked at our life, we would look at our life and say, God, I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you saved me. I don't know why you did anything for me because, Lord, I'm unworthy. I don't deserve it. I don't live like it. I'm just a filthy, rotten sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to judge anybody else for what they do because if they really knew about me, they'd see I was much worse than them. But because of Jesus, that realization that we are hypocritical sinners, it should lead us to a place of repentance where we find grace, not condemnation. When we fully confess our sin, we receive abundant grace from God. See, taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means that we examine our hearts, we judge ourselves accordingly, and we confess our sins before God before taking it. Because here's the wonderful thing about God. You can come to Him about the same sin over and over and over and over again. And if we truly confess it and truly repent of it, now repentance just means you turn your, you change your mind, you're turning from your sin. Doesn't mean you're never going to do it again because we all fall short. We're all sinners. We all have flesh. We battle every day. But when we fall and we say, God, I blew it again. I messed up again. I lost my temper again. Lord, I was bitter again. Lord, I look at that website again. Lord, whatever. I did it again. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I understand I am a sinner and I violated your word. The Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is grace because we don't deserve forgiveness from God. But he always gives it when we seek it. He always gives it when we need it. You know, self-examination is not a door to keep us from the Lord's Supper. It's a door that we pause at to see if we're the right condition to enter. How many of y'all, before you left your house this morning, 
You, you got up. You showered. I hope you all brushed your teeth. You all put on deodorant. Some of you guys, you shaved. Some of you ladies may have as well. I don't know. But you did your hair. You got dressed. Before you left the house, how many of y'all looked at the mirror to make sure everything was right? My hair is right. I know Danny did. <coughs> Danny looks too sharp to not. Some of you, looks like you didn't, but uh, Connor, I don't think Connor did. But most of us, when we're going, you go, you go into a wedding, you, you always, is everything right? If you're, if you're the bride, you live in front of a mirror. Make sure everything, make sure that, that curl is perfect. Make sure the baby's breath of my hair is right. Make sure everything's perfect. And you, you want to make sure you are looking appropriate before you go to where you're going to go. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's just taking a minute, looking in the mirror of the Word of God, and saying, is there anything in my life I have to get right with God before I take the Lord's Supper? Do you have any idols in your heart? Do you have, are you doing anything to cause division between you and another believer? Are you trusting God alone for your salvation or are you trying to earn your way to God? Is there anyone you need to forgive or is there anyone you need to seek forgiveness from? Are you willing to repent of your sin before taking the Lord's Supper? See, the Lord's Supper is never meant to be a time of nourishment. I mean, look, if you're looking to fill up on this thing, you're going to be sadly mistaken. You're going to be hungry. It's not meant to give you nourishment. It's not meant to fill you up. It's a place where we receive grace for today because of the grace we received in the past. But not only does it give us grace for the, in the past, not only does it give us grace for today, number three, it prepares us for grace in the future. Look at number verse number 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. What are those last four words or last three words? Till he come. We are, we are remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus until he comes back. We are to observe the Lord's Supper to approach this place where we receive the, the grace of God until the Lord comes back. See, the return of Jesus is the ultimate hope for every believer. Because it reminds us, the Lord's Supper reminds us, Jesus was beaten for us. He was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And he literally, physically died for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He is in heaven today, but he's not dead. He is alive, seated by the right hand of God, waiting for God to look at him and say, hey, go and get your bride. And we know that he's coming back because when he, before he went to heaven, he goes, hey, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I am coming back. And since he died and rose again like he said he would, we take the Lord's Supper and say, God, you died for us, but you came back to life. You ascended to heaven, 
but you said you're coming back. So, Lord, I believe and I trust that one day you are coming back to receive us. One day, Jesus is coming back to fix everything that was broken, to turn our, our pain and our suffering into eternal joy where we live with him forever. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that one day Jesus is coming to get his bride. And we will spend eternity with God in heaven and then on earth. See, the Lord's Supper not only reminds us of what Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection, it reminds us that he promised to come back one day. And that day could be today. He could come back at any moment. That's incredible hope for us. Because look, this world, I don't know if you've noticed, it's a mess. It, I, was, I was on Facebook the other day and I saw this one guy. You know, so, sometimes I like to go to these crazy conspiracy theory sites and see what people are saying. And, you know, this, you know the flat earthers and all this. And uh, this one guy, he said that the, the and we didn't know this. So if y'all didn't know this, you know, I hate to break the news to you. The world ended in 2012. It blew up. That's when they, they perfected the Higgs boson machine and they created a, a black hole that sucked us all in and we're all dead. The world ended. We're in an alternate reality and that's why things are so crazy. No. But it's, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and it's not going to get better until Jesus comes back, has a thousand year millennial reign, destroys the, whole, the earth and creates it new and then one day it'll be perfect. Right now it ain't perfect. But our hope is it doesn't have to be perfect because he's coming back one day. He's going to come back and restore everything to the way it should have been. That is the grace we have for the future. You know, every one of us, we need grace. We need grace for our past. We need grace for today. And we need grace for the future. Where do you need grace this morning? Do you need forgiveness? Maybe you need grace for salvation where... You've never really trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. You're trusting your good works, your church membership, or just hoping it all works out in the end. And you've never really put your faith and trust in the fact that Jesus came because he loves you. He lived a perfect life because you never could. He died on the cross a death you should have suffered. The wrath of God for all of our sin was poured out on him. He suffered, he bled, he died for us, but he rose again to redeem us to God the Father, to prove he was God in the flesh and his sacrifice was accepted. And all you gotta do is put your trust in that and that alone for salvation. Maybe you've never done that. Today's the day to do that. Do you need to give forgiveness? The Lord's Supper is for you. It shows us that Jesus died for your sins to forgive you and we should forgive others as we have been forgiven. You need deliverance from sin. The Lord's Supper is for you because it's rooted in redemption and repentance. Do you need approval from someone? This is for you because it shows that God accepts you as you are. Do you want to know Jesus more? This is for you because it points to the greatest moment in human history. It takes to the, to points to the moment when God took on flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, died in our place, and rose again to reconcile us to God. The Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the cross of Christ. The bread and the cup represent his body and his blood shed for us. His death and resurrection 
extend grace to all of us. Now, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to do what Paul said. We're going to take some time and examine ourselves. Look at our life and say, God, is there anything I need to confess? Is there any bitterness I need to let go of? Is there any forgiveness I need to offer? Is there any sin I should get right with you? Lord, is my life living up to what it should? And if not, wonderful thing is we can confess it and God gives grace and forgiveness.